in progress. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a Daily Power Parsha, Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. We are in the middle of the Torah portion of Tzav. Tzav, of course, is the second Parsha, the second uh, Torah portion in the book of Leviticus. And the theme of sacrifices continues in this Torah portion. Okay, so yesterday we spoke about the... Um, uh, some additional details regarding the Ola offering. We spoke about the fire on the altar and how the fire must always be kindled and a little bit about the ma'arach, a little bit about the arrangement of the wood on the, on, on the altar. Um, we spoke about when the parts of the animal from the animal offerings are burned, either during the day when it's brought or that night, the following night. We spoke about... What else did we speak? We spoke about the additional laws regarding the mincha offering, the flower offering. Um, and how the Kohen eats the rest of the flour but must not bake it as chametz. Uh, it has to be baked as matzah, i.e. unleavened items. And that was kind of what we explored yesterday. Today we're going to continue the theme and talk about some more sacrificial details. But first, I want to show you something pretty cute that I think at least is very cute. When I went to Chabad.org just a moment ago, so I found this picture. This is a graham cracker altar. If you notice, you have a little graham cracker altar top with the four horns of the altar, and uh, it looks like a sheep, an animal cracker sheep. A bull, a bull, I think, a bull. Oh, is it a bull? Oh, even better. Okay, a bull. I saw it yesterday. I saw it too. I know. It's a very dog. cute. Yeah. And you have the graham cracker ramp, very and with with a little bit of a chocolate, like a little bit of a melted chocolate um, mortar, you know, kind of cement there to cement the little thing together. Uh, all in all, a very cute uh, little activity, the edible altar. Coming soon to a child's craft experience near you. All right. I do it. I love that Listen. Stuff. All right. When I say the child, I mean the inner child. It doesn't have to be an right. actual child with a passport, as says child, but it could be. All right. So let's jump into our text. This is, we're up to reading number two. And let's jump in. Leviticus chapter six, verse number 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying... And if you wonder why it keeps on saying that, verse 12, verse 17, right? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, we get it. This is all stuff that God told Moses. We already answered that last week, that every time it repeats and the Lord spoke to Moses, it was a new communication. How come God didn't just tell him all the details at once? To give Moses a chance to process. God gave Moses piece by piece. God said, let's meet, let's schmooze. He gave him one set of laws. All right. Think about it, discuss it, explore it, ponder it, and then he calls him back for the next set of laws. So when we're reading, God spoke to Moses, God spoke to Moses, God spoke to Moses, it was literally different conversations. Why? To give Moses a chance to process. This is a lesson in teaching, as we discussed last week, a lesson in communication. So you have to allow the other person time to process the information before you hit him over the head with the next idea. All right, on that note, let's jump right in. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord on the day when one of them is anointed. So now we're not talking about a voluntary offering. We're not talking about a burnt offering, a peace offering. We're not talking about a sin offering, a guilt offering, um, a pending offering, if a person is not sure if they sinned or not, no, this is a different, this is a different offering. This is a priestly offering that's, that's offered on the day 
that one of them is anointed. So, and it's an inauguration offering. So what is brought? One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a perpetual meal offering. Half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. So number one, on the day that a Kohen is anointed, he brings a meal offering. It's interesting, it says perpetual meal offering. I'm sure we'll find out what that means. Um, a meal offering consisting of a tenth of an eighth of fine flour. That's a measurement of fine flour. Half is brought in the morning, half in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a shallow pan. After bringing it, scalded and repeatedly baked. So it's scalded and then baked. You shall offer, it's kind of like bagels, right? La to bagels. You boil the bagel, then you bake the bagel. It's the whole thing. So you scald it and bake this. What do you think they got the recipe for? You shall offer, back inside, you shall offer a meal offering of broken pieces with a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. So this meal offering is scalded, baked, broken into pieces, and then it is brought um, on the altar. And the Kohen who is anointed, instead of him from among his sons, shall prepare it. This is an eternal, I'm assuming anointed instead of him, is, is a reference to the high priest who will follow Aaron, right? So anointed instead of him, meaning the new high priest, should offer, should prepare. This is an eternal statute. It shall be completely burnt to the Lord. Every meal offering of a Kohen shall be completely burnt. It shall not be eaten. Unlike private meal offerings, where only the kmitza, only part of it is burnt in the altar and the rest is eaten. In this case, this um, mincha, this um, uh, uh, flour meal offering, which is scalded and baked, the entire offering is completely burnt to the Lord. It shall not be eaten. Nothing of this is eaten. Now let's look at Rashi to get some clarity. What are we talking about here? So Rashi explains who brings the offering, when, what's going on here. Ordinary Kohanim, ordinary priests, must also offer a meal offering consisting of a tenth of an eighth of flour on the day they are inaugurated into service. So there's two issues here. There's two, two offerings. One, when a new Kohen is inaugurated into the service, welcome, Rabbi Kohen, to the service. Welcome to the temple. He brings... This meal offering, the tenth of an ephah of the flour mixed with oil, scalded and baked and broken into pieces, burnt on the altar. Right. He brings this on day one. However, let's continue. One second. Let's let. Oh, let's let Sarah back in. However, the Kohen Gadol, however, right, the high priest must bring this meal offering every day. As it is said, and I told you before that Rashi was going to help us out, a perpetual meal offering. It says, Soles mincha tamid. Right? It's Asir Seva Soles. It's a tenth of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Mincha is an offering. Tamid consistently. What is consistently? Every single day. Who brings it every day? If it's, if it's about on the day that they're anointed, why do you bring it every day? Yes. So a regular Kohen only on the day that they're anointed, the day that they're inaugurated to service. But the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, the Big Kahuna, as they say, brings this meal offering every day, and that's what makes it perpetual. And the Kohen, who is anointed instead of him from among his sons, also the eternal statue. In other words, not only the original high priest, Aaron, but his son who takes over, and his son who takes over, whichever person gets, gets anointed 
and and um, appointed as the high priest must bring this offering every single day. So just to gain clarity, because the, the point is not just to read words, but to gain clarity and insight, there is a priestly meal offering that is brought in two contexts. For a regular Kohen, on the first day of their service, for a high priest, a Kohen Gadol, a high priest, every day of their life, they bring this meal offering. And what is the meal offering? A tenth of an eighth of fine flour mixed with oil, scalded and, and, um, and baked, and then broken into pieces, burnt on the altar. That happens every single day for the high priest, day one for every other priest. Okay, let's continue in Rashi. Made of oil, uh, made with oil in a shallow pan, scalded, okay, scalded. Rashi says, how do you scald? Boiling water is poured over it, over the dough. So you make a dough, right? You make flour and, and oil, you make a dough. Then you pour, boiling, you pour, I can't, I'm not speaking correctly here. You pour boiling water over it until it is thoroughly scalded, okay? I wonder if anyone's tried that with bagels, yeah? You talk about boiling bagels, how about scalding the bagels? Try that. Repeatedly baked, what does that mean? Baked many times. After the scalding, he bakes it into an oven and afterwards fries it in a shallow pan. Look at that. You scald it, you bake it, and then you fry it in a shallow pan. That is repeatedly baked and fried. That dough is not raw anymore. Let's just put it that way. That dough is not raw. Okay? It's a meal offering of broken pieces. So Rashi says, this teaches us that it requires breaking up. In other words, once it's scalded, baked, and fried, then you break it up into pieces. Now, old Rashi edition, aha, in an original edition of Rashi, there is a continuation that is not necessarily in all the editions of Rashi. So that's why it's in brackets. All right, here we go. But not really breaking of the offering into separate pieces and crumbs, since it is not scooped, but he folds it into two and folds it again into four, first vertically and then horizontally. Ah, so the old, in an older edition of Rashi, he clarifies that you're not making it into crumbs. The goal here is not to make it into like a crushed meal offering into powder. He just folds it twice. Whatever it ended up, it seems like it was kind of something flat. So you folded it one way and then folded it the other way and it cracked on the folds and that was it. However, he does not separate it into pieces. In this form, he burns it as a fire offering because what is he going to do? Pour out a bunch of like crumbs on the altar? That's not, that's not really efficient. It's very messy and it may not burn as well. I guess it would burn. I don't know. It, whatever. Either way, that's the older edition of Rashi explains that it's not broken into crumbs, uh, broken up to the point that it's in crumbs, but it's folded a few times and then those pieces are put on the altar. Okay. Um, Rashi explains, what about the Kohen who's anointed it instead of him from among the sons? What does that mean? This is to be understood as if transposed. The Kohen who is anointed from among his sons instead of him shall bring it. Okay, in other words, Rashi is, is switching the syntax, the order of the words, at least in the understanding of it, so that it makes a little bit more sense for the reader. Um, okay, usually with a flower offering, when there's a Kamitsa procedure, Kamitsa is the three-finger uh, scoop. So what is scooped out is burned on the altar, and the rest, the remainder, is eaten by the Kohanim. That's usually, we've had that multiple times heretofore. Before, every other meal offering until now, it's always been a kamitza burned, and then the rest eaten. However, in this offering, right, 
there is no kamitza procedure to enable any remainder to be eaten. You do not scoop and burn, you burn the whole thing. Rather, it's burnt in its entirety. Similarly, any voluntary meal offering brought by a Kohen must be completely burned. So when the Kohen brings the, off, brings the meal offering, it must be completely burned. In all situations, it seems, when the Kohen brings, actually, I can't say all, because there may be an exception, but at least with any voluntary meal offering brought by a Kohen or this inauguration offering, must be, or the Kohen Gadol daily offering, the thing is completely burnt. Okay, completely all of it must be equally offered to God on high. There's no part that's, re, that, that's, that's not burnt and eaten or put away for something else. It's all burnt equally to God. All right, let's toggle Rashi off and get back inside. All right, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. We talked about the sin offering last week. But let's get some more details this week. The sin offering shall be slaughtered before the Lord in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. The Ola, the Ola offering. That was the first offering that we talked about at the beginning of last week's Torah portion, beginning of Leviticus. So you slaughter the sin offering in the same place that you slaughter the burnt offering. It is a holy of holies. Now, the, the idea here is, just so we're all clear, is that the offering that the burnt offering and the sin offering that, as we see, were, were slaughtered outside the temple building, inside the courtyard still, inside the, the footprint of the temple, but outside the building, right, on the eastern side of the building, there was the altar and the space, and there was sacrificed in that space between the altar and the building. The Kohen who offers it up as a sin offering, oh, we have new details. All that we explained up until now, last week. But now we have a new detail. The Kohen who offers it up as a sin offering, the Kohen who actually does it on behalf of the person, shall eat it. Whatever part of the animal is eaten shall be eaten by the one who did the work to bring it. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the courtyard of the tent of meeting, in the temple courtyard, the Mishkan, the tabernacle courtyard. It's eaten inside that courtyard, right? Because it's holy, you can't take it off of Mishkan grounds or temple grounds. You cannot take it outside that retaining wall because then it's a, a, um, a, a what's some, what am I looking for? It's a desecration or it is a, whatever. It's, it's a diminishment of the holiness of the offering. Let's continue again, more details. Anything that touches its flesh, in other words, anything that touches the flesh of this sacrifice shall become holy. That thing itself becomes holy. And if any, hey Mark, welcome. And if any of its blood is sprinkled on a garment, the area of the garment upon which it has been sprinkled, you shall wash in a holy place. Look at that. So any part, anything that this holy, that this sacrifice touches, likewise becomes in a state of holiness. And so anything that touches this, the flesh, the actual meat of this uh, sin offering becomes holy. The blood, if it sprinkles on a garment, that place is also holy and it has to be washed only in a holy place. Right? That gives an opening for, you know, holy dry cleaners or holy launderers. Something like that. we got to come up with a catchy business name. All right, next. An earthenware vessel. Ah, let's get into this. An earthenware vessel in which it is cooked. In other words, in which it, it meaning the, the sin offering or, the, or another offering that has that status of holiness. 
any earthenware vessel in which it's cooked shall be broken. Why does it need to be broken? I'll tell you why it needs to be broken. Because it absorbed holy meat, holy uh, sacrificial juice, if you will. And now you can't use this pot, this, this earthenware vessel for mundane use because it's got the holiness mixed in. And you're also not allowed to eat it <coughs> after a day or two. And the idea is if you're using this, let's say it's a pot. You cooked the, you cooked the, um, the sacrifice, you're a Kohen, and you cooked the sacrificial meat inside a pot. Great. You can't use that pot for any other purpose. Why? Because now it has the sacrificial meat flavor inside the walls of the pot. And when you cook again, it's going to come out, mix with your regular mundane food, and it's not going to be good. So you have to, and, and, or even if you cook, even if you cook more sacrifices in there, let's say you keep a special pot for only sacrifice, you're a Kohen, you keep it for the sacrificial stuff. Doesn't matter, because two days later, if you want to cook something else, the absorption of the prior offering will come out and render the food invalid. Why? Because you're not allowed to eat the offering after a day or two, depending on the offering, after one or two days, you can no longer eat the offering. And thus the absorption that comes from that original offering that comes out from the walls of the pot that mixes with the flavor of the food invalidates the eating experience now. So therefore, what is the solution when it comes to an earthenware vessel? You have to break it, you have to smash it, destroy it. You can't use it again. It's a one-time use. But if it's cooked in a copper vessel, and that's gonna be the answer, use copper. If it's cooked in a metal vessel, it shall be purged that means with boiling water and rinsed with water. So you have to, you have to kosher it, essentially kosher the pot, and then rinse it with water. Every male among the, I'm, we're going to go back to this, by the way. These are very important laws of kosher and koshering. Every male among the Kohanim may eat it. It is a holy of holies. It can, every male Kohen is allowed to eat from the sin offering. Considered, once again, holy of holies. But any sin offering, some of whose blood was brought into the tent of meaning to make atonement in the holy, shall not be eaten, it shall be burned in fire. If you brought the blood of the sin offering inside the tent of meeting, uh-oh, 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 that was a mistake. That was a mistake. You don't bring the blood of the sin offering into the tent of meeting. Other offerings go into the tent of meeting, but the sin offering, all the blood work happens outside the building, outside the tent of meeting, outside that inner building. It's all done outside. If you, by accident, because, you know, a burnt offering, the blood is brought inside. A shlamim offering, peace offering, it is brought inside. The sin offering is only outside. But let's say the Kohen made a mistake. Mistakes happen. He's shechts the animal and by accident takes the blood inside. Whoops. Whoops. So what do you do with the animal? That animal shall not be eaten. It shall be burned in fire. You got to burn the whole animal. No, no eating it. It's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a mistake. And the whole animal is burnt. Okay. Uh, let's do some Rashi's. So we are now regarding the sin offering. Details of the sin offering. These are additional details over and above what we discussed last week in Parshas Vayikra. Rashi says, the one who offers it up, the Kohen, who offers it up as a sin offering, he is the one who shall eat it. Rashi, the one who performs the components of the service, i.e. the one through whom it becomes a sin offering. In other words, the one who makes it happen, the Kohen who makes the sin offering happen. So he gets to eat it. Um, any Kohen fit for the service, okay, this comes to exclude a Kohen who is unclean at the time of the dashing of the blood, who does not take a share in the flesh. Interesting. 
Rashi says the Kohen who offers it shall eat it means any Kohen fit for the service. Maybe not specifically the one who did it. That's what it seems like from Rashi. But any Kohen fit for the service. As long as one is in a state of purity at the time, it seems like there is eligibility to eat from this offering. Um, but the one who is unclean, impure at the time, does not take a share in the flesh. But, aha, uh-huh, it is impossible to say, okay, this is good. This is why we have Rashi. It's why Rashi gets paid the big bucks. It is impossible to say that this verse prohibits other Kohanim from eating it, except the Kohen who dashes the blood, right? For it says further in verse 22, which we read a moment ago, any male among the Kohanim may eat it. So when it says any male among the Kohanim may eat it, that means any Kohen that's fit, that's, uh, that's, that's eligible to do the service is allowed to eat from it. But not only the specific one who did the service. So Rashi is understanding, and this is of course based on the Medrash and the Talmud, when the, when the Torah says the Kohen who offers it up as a sin offering shall eat it, what it means is not necessarily the Kohen who offers it up, that one person. It means any Kohen who could have offered it up because they are a valid Kohen in a state of purity, they are allowed to eat it. And that's how we explain the verse 22 that says any male among the Kohen may eat it. Any male means it's open, not just the one person who brought it. Which means, essentially, Rashi could have asked a contradiction between verse 19 and verse 22. In verse 19, it says, the one who offers it shall eat it. In verse 22, it says, every male may eat it. So how do you reconcile the one who brought it versus any male? So Rashi says, it's not just the one who brought it. It's any male Kohen who is fit to have brought it is allowed to eat from it. I hope that makes sense. Okay, now anything. So now that you have the, the carbon chatas, you have the sin offering, it was shechted properly, the blood was sprinkled in the right place. Now you have the parts of the animal that are burnt on the altar, the fats, the diaphragm, the liver, the kidneys, all that stuff that we talked about last week. And then you have the rest of the animal that is eaten. Well, what happens if something touches the flesh? Anything that touches the flesh, Rashi explains, any item of food that touches it and absorbs from it. Ah, we're talking about food. So food intermingles with the sacrificial food shall become holy. What does that mean? It's like it. It meaning this sacrificial meat itself. Insofar as if that sin offering was invalid, whatever touches the sin offering becomes invalid as well. And if that sin offering is valid, whatever touches it must be eaten under the same stringency as the sin offering, namely only during the day of offering and the following night. The way it is, it's only a day and a night. Now we have clarity. Rashi helps with clarity. Let me stop sharing and make sure we all got this. The way it works with a sin offering is you can only eat the, the Kohen, the Kohanim, can only eat the meat of the sin offering the day and the night, the day that it's brought. So today is Tuesday. Let's say somebody waltzes into the temple with a sin offering. And maybe that it's maybe that has scheduling app. Schedule your sin offering, right? Choose a slot. I don't know, or you just brought it in. I'm not sure how advanced they were back then with apps. Um, anyway, I was joking about that. So imagine somebody brings in a sin offering. It's right now 12:39 on my computer. 12:39 p.m. Somebody comes with a sin offering. The process starts. A kohen takes it, and the guy does vidui, does the confession. They take the animal. They slaughter the animal. They bring the blood on the outer altar. They dash it around. They pour some blood by the base of the altar. Great, they burn certain parts of the animal on the altar and now the rest is divided up to be eaten by the Kohan and by the priest. Great, fantastic. What happens if this meat mixes in with other meat, mixes in with other food? Yeah, what happens? Well, 
Here we go. If it turns out that this offering, so one second, the rule is if it mixes, well, sorry, before we talk about mixing, that meat that the Kohen can eat from this offering can only be eaten today, Tuesday, tonight, Tuesday night, into Wednesday. That's the only time it can be eaten for a day and a night, the day that it's brought, the daytime, and the following evening, the following night until daybreak the next morning. So if it's brought at 12.40 p.m., you can eat it until daybreak tomorrow. That's the way it is with the sin offering. If anything else touches that food. So if you cook, if you're cooking, uh, um, what would be a good example? A meat soup. Yeah, meat soup. So you cook the meat in a pot with soup and vegetables and whatever, with other with liquid and vegetables. Yeah, and then you strain out. You're not eating the meat. You just have the broth. The broth is the same status as the meat, which means that if somehow the sacrifice ultimately became invalid, let's say the Kohen, right? Let's say the Kohen brought the blood inside by accident. They realize later, whoops, brought the blood inside, totally messed up. You can't eat that meat. It has to be burned. What about the soup? Can I eat the soup? Can't eat the soup. Even without the meat, it absorbed the flavor. It has the same status as the meat. Yeah, and you have to eat that soup by tomorrow morning. I hope you like soup, right? I hope you like soup, my friends. <laughs> you made a chalent. I'm not having the meat. I'm just having the beans and the potatoes. Doesn't matter. If it became invalid, the, the whole chalent is invalid. And you have to finish it by tomorrow morning. Just be, takes on the same status as the sacrific sacrificial meat itself. Um... Yeah. Yes. Um, where was all this done? The because cooking? I was, yeah, from yesterday, I was under the impression that, uh, I mean, not the impression, that's actually what it said. It was done in the Holy of Holies, which I thought was only gone into once a year. No, no, no. It's called Holy of Holies. The sacrifice is called Holy of Holies, but it's not done in the Holy of Holies. No. It's Kodesh Kadashim. It is, it, the sacrifice is called Holy of Holies, Right. Rash, uh, the verse 18 says, it is Kodesh Kadashim He. It is Kodesh Kadashim, it's Holy of Holies. That doesn't mean it happens in the space called Holy of Holies. You're right. That it's only once a year with the ark, with the, I mean, with the incense on Yom Kippur with the high priest. When it says it's Holy of Holies, it means that the sacrifice has, a, there are different levels of sacrifices. The sacrifices are also called Holy of Holies, meaning the highest level holiness of a sacrifice. There's two different Holy of Holies, is my point. There's a space called Holy of Holies, and there's a status of sacrificial uh, meat called Holy of Holies. And that dictates where it can be eaten in the temple courtyard, and when it can be eaten only a day and a night. It's the most restricted. Yes. When I took notes yesterday, uh, this is where we talked about the frankincense and taking the, 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 the three fingerfuls and all yes. that. Yes. And in my notes, what I wrote down was, uh, it says, Gur uh, Arya. Uh, wrote, the entire courtyard is holy. The verse is read in a holy place in the courtyard uh, of the tent of meeting. Uh, courtyard of the tent of meeting is the holy place. Correct. So Correct. So talking about the offering, was talking about the location. Right, right. True. But when we say holy of holies, we're not referring to eating the sacrificial meat in the actual holy of holies in that space. It's the status of the offering has a status of, of holy of holies. Because he says it, the, the courtyard of the tent of meeting is the holy 
place. Right. Not the holy food, but the holy place. Correct. But when we say that a sacrifice is, right, verse 18, I have it on the screen. It is a holy of holies. It means the sacrifice is a holy of holies. That's what I'm referring to. It's a holy of holies. It's, that's not referring to the place of the temple. It's referring to the status of the sin offering sacrifice. The sin offering has a status of Kodesh Kadashim, holy of holies, which means not that it's a place, but it has to be eaten in a certain place. It has to be eaten at a certain amount of time within a certain time frame, and it has to be eaten only by certain individuals. Co- uh, pure priests. Holy, holy no, priests. No, th- this was verse 9, but it still is talking about the same thing in, in this, uh, in this, par- in this uh, reading too. In verse 9 it says, uh, uh, It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the courtyard of the tent of meeting shall they eat it. That's verse 9. Correct. That does, I don't know if it said there, Kodesh Kadashim. I'm referring to something very specific in this reading right now. Kodesh Kadashim He, Holy of Holies, is not about a place. It's about a status of the offering. And it's very important that we understand that offerings can also have a status of Kodesh Kadashim, and that's the way it's referred to in the Torah. And, it, it's, and that dictates, again, where it can be eaten, when it can be eaten, and by whom it can be eaten. It's, there's various restrictions on who, what, where, when, with regard to these sacrificial uh, meats. Okay, now let's continue. Um, we were talking about if other foods touch the sin offering meat, then it takes on the status of that meat, which means that if that sacrifice becomes invalid, uh, you can't eat the food either, the other food. Uh, the sacrificial meat has to be eaten within a day and a night. you got to eat the rest of the food within a day and a night also. And if some of its blood, Rashi says, sprinkled on a garment, Rashi explains... Um, if some of its blood, if some of its blood, of the blood of the offering, is sprinkled on the garment, i.e., the area of the garment which has been sprinkled, that area shall be washed within the courtyard of the holy temple. You cannot clean it or launder it outside the temple. Why? Because it has holy sin offering blood, and that has to be dealt with in the temple. It's kodesh kadashim. Has to be dealt with in the holy space. You cannot take it out and just wash it at home. You cannot wash out the blood down your drain in the sink in your house. It has to be done in the temple space. Um, Okay, let's continue. Now, very important. We talk about earthenware vessels. We did this inside, but I want to do Rashi on this. An earthenware vessel versus a copper vessel. What's the difference? Before we get to the law, to the application, let's understand the difference. Here we go. An earthenware vessel is more porous than a copper vessel. And Jewish law is very, very um, clear on this. Earthenware vessels, pottery, clay, stoneware. So earthenware vessels are much more porous than their metal counterparts. What that means is, when it comes to absorption, is the following. When you cook something in an earthenware vessel, the flavor of that food and the particles, particles, I mean, we know now that everything is, you know, everything that looks solid is porous and things, you know, are constantly um, combining fluidly between one thing and the next, absorbing and unabsorbing. So when it comes to earthenware vessels, Jewish law states that it is so porous that it absorbs, but it never fully releases the absorption from the walls of that earthenware vessel. Which means, for example, in the laws of, of kosher, if you cook food in an earthenware pot, okay? Let's say non-kosher food in an earthenware pot. The actual walls of the pot, the pot itself, you cleaned it, you scrubbed it, wonderful. 
inside the walls is non-kosher food absorption. I don't see it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter that you don't see it. The eye can't see everything anyway. We know microscopes, right? So inside the walls of the earthenware vessel is non-kosher absorption. So what happens now if I want to cook, let's say, kosher food? When I cook it, the heat is now going to draw because heat transfers. Heat transfers. Heat makes things vibrate and move around. So now the heat transfers. So now the some of the non-kosher absorption inside the walls of the vessel are going to come out into the food that you're cooking, the kosher food, and render the kosher food not kosher anymore. Which is why you can't kosher an earthenware vessel. If you're koshering a kitchen, right, you cannot kosher earthenware vessel. That's why, for example, famously, you can't really kosher China, what's called China, right? Dishes that are made of, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, what's China made out of? Whatever, like um, earthenware vessels. You cannot kosher them. Why? Because it absorbed, let's say, the non-kosher. And now it's always going to be eligible to be giving out its absorption onto the kosher food. And it's always going to be corrupting the kosher food with its absorption. So they have the glaze, which is glass. The glaze. Okay, good. So look, your mileage may vary. I'm not, this, is not a practice, this is not a practical halakha class. So that's obviously much more nuanced and detailed. But just generally speaking, we can't kosher earthenware vessels. What's the, what, what's the tikkun? How do you, what do you do with it? You got to break it. Now, okay, if you break it, then you don't have it. And that's the point. You can't kosher it, essentially. You just got to get rid of it. You can't use it. What are you going to do? Um, when it comes to uh, 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 copper or metal, other metals, halacha says, Jushla says, just like it absorbs, it can release the absorption. It also absorbs, but not as much. And when you heat it up again, it will release its absorption 100%, and the, the pot itself can be kosher. So now, let's speak about the context that we have. Oh, oh so one second. Can so, I interrupt you one second? Sure. That's a question I've got because where it says it should be scoured and rinsed, uh, and and Rashi says, and the word he uses it says it's from uh, uh, it's related to uh, some phrase used in Hebrew, which is the cosmetics of women. With it talks about scouring and rinsing, but not boiling. That's my question. All right, hold on, hold on. We haven't got, wait, one second, you're jumping. We haven't gotten there yet. One second, one second. One thing at a time. So I'm giving you general information about the difference between earthenware vessels and copper. So earthenware, we say it absorbs, but it doesn't fully give out the absorption, so it remains not kosher. If it's not kosher, if not kosher was in there. And, but copper, metal releases it. So therefore, in, in, in generally speaking, in halacha, you can kosher metal utensils, metal pots and pans, you can kosher those things. It can be rendered kosher even after absorbing non-kosher, or for that matter, you can make it Pesach dik, as they say, you can make it kosher for Passover, even after you cooked chametz in it all year round. There's a way to kosher metal vessels, but not earthenware vessels. Good. When it comes to the sacrificial meat, you have the same issue. The sacrificial meat is kosher, but it's very restrictive. You can only eat it a day and a night. Within 24 hours or, or less, it has to be finished. If you, if you eat it after that, it's a big sin. You can't eat a, a sin offering the next day. That itself is problematic. It's highly problematic. So what happens? You have your earthenware pot. You cook up some sin offering for dinner. You're a Kohen. You're cooking up a sin offering. Great. You enjoy it. Good. It's clean. It's empty. It's fine. The next day, you cook another sin offering. Whoops. 
It's an earthenware vessel. There's absorption from the previous day's sin offering in there. It's now coming out into the second day's sin offering. And now you're eating a little bit of flavor from that original sin offering, which you cannot do. So you basically have to break the earthenware vessel or don't use it for sacrificial service, for, for sacrificial meat. That's essentially what the Torah is telling us. Um, whereas when it comes to copper, you can kosher. Now, let's read this. Rashi says, why do you have to break the earthenware vessel? Because the absorption that had been absorbed in the vessel becomes nicer, which means left over. I.e., the food remains within the vessel's wall, and subsequently, when the time limit for eating the sacrifice has expired, the absorption in the vessel wall is left over, i.e., left over food, left over um, sacrificial meat that is not kosher. Since nicer left over must be destroyed by burning, yeah, you got to burn. If, if there is any leftovers, you have to burn it. You can't eat it. You have to burn it. So the food in the wall of this earthenware vessel must be destroyed by breaking the vessel. The same law breaking the earthenware vessel in which the meat of sacrifice has been cooked applies also to all holy sacrifices, not just the sin offering. Any offering, any sacrifice, which they all do, which has a time limit, you can only eat it for this span of time. After that, if it's an earthenware vessel, it's got to be destroyed because you got to get rid of that no, sir. You have to get rid of the leftovers, and there's leftover inside the wall of the pot or the pan. Now, it is to be purged. It is to be purged. What does that mean? Rashi explains, purge, an expression stemming from the same root as with the ointments of women, uh, with Tamruke Anashim Esther, unbelievable timing, we're right before Purim, and he quotes a verse from the book of Esther, that she was anointed, right, with the anointments of women when she was being prepared to, to present herself before the king for the beauty pageant, etc. She anointed herself with Tamruke Hanashim. That is the same idea, ointments, um, etc. Substance used for cleansing and purifying women. So the cleansing would be that scouring or what's the word that's used today? The um, maybe exfoliating or whatever it is. Escurement in Old French, like the English word scouring. Persian rinsed, Rashi says, to expel, expel its absorption. This is in the case of metal vessel, but an earlier vessel, as we said before a moment ago, Scripture teaches you here by requiring that it be broken, that it never rids itself of its defect. So Mark's question is, it's not just purged, scoured, and rinsed. It's not just scoured and rinsed. What about the hot water? It's a good question. It's a good question. So either there's another indication here that it's hot water, or we have from elsewhere that it's hot water. But one thing is for sure, that mark is correct. There must be hot water. There cannot just you cannot just take a a brillo brillo yeah or um, a uh, what's that the metal the come on what's it called a scouring pad the the metal one the um, scouring pad no but it's what's it called the material it's um, brillo not, is right brillo yeah okay yeah. so it's like you take the you can't just take the brillo and rinse it under with cold water. It's got to be boiling water, and that is learned either from here or elsewhere, or maybe, you know, Rashi's not the only game in town, but uh, definitely there needs to be boiling water. That we know for sure from other contexts, and I would imagine even from this context. Um, we said any male Kohen is allowed to eat it. And Rashi, again, just to bookend what we said before, this tells us, that from here we learn, Rashi says, that when the verse said before, the Kohen who offers it up, shall eat it, that does not come to exclude all other kohanim, but to exclude one who is unfit to offer it up as a sin offering. doesn't mean specifically the one who brought it, but one who could bring it because they are in a state of ritual purity. Um, but any sin offering, here we go, any sin offering, some of whose blood was brought into the tent of meeting, 
Uh-oh, that's invalidated. Why? This verse teaches us, Rashi says, that if one brings any of the blood of a sin offering to be sacrificed on the outside altar inside the holy, it becomes invalid. Again, with the sin offering, and I'm very tempted to pull up last week's Torah portion, but I'm not. It's going to take too much time. Last week we learned that a sin offering, the blood work, the blood pouring, the blood sprinkling is done outside. The coin made a mistake and brought it inside. That's it. You got to burn it. Got to burn it entirely in fire. Um, okay, Leviticus chapter 7. Let's talk about the guilt offering, the Asham. Here we go. New offering category. We got the Asham. Let's hide Rashi. Let's jump into some new information. Oh, by the way, I'm going to get back to the difference between earthenware and copper uh, as, a, as a take-home message. As we, when, we wrap this, uh, this up, when we wrap up our session, I'll talk about some uh, personal messages from the difference between earthenware and metal. All right, Leviticus chapter 7, verse number 1. And this is the law of the guilt offering. All right, guilt offering is the asham. Once again, it is a holy of holies. The offering has holy status, and that is a, def- and that, that is a delineation that's given to off- certain offerings to delineate who can eat it, where they can eat it, and when they can eat it, and in which state, i.e. state of purity, it can be eaten. So it's a holy of holies. The offering is the highest level of sanctity. They shall slaughter the guilt offering, the asham, in the place where they slaughter the burnt offering. In other words, outside the building, near the altar, between the altar and the temple building and the Mishkan building. That's where they did it outside. And its blood shall be dashed upon the altar around. The altar would mean the outer altar, not the inner altar. And all its fat he shall offer from it. The tail and the fat covering the innards. Now the tail probably means we're talking about a sheep because that's the context that we have the tail by the, uh, by the sheep. But we'll see Rashi. I'm, su- I'm sure Rashi will help clarify. And you also offer, you burn on the altar, you also offer the kidneys, the two kidneys, along with the fat that is upon them, which is on the flanks, and the diaphragm with the liver, along with the kidneys, you shall remove it. And the coin shall cause them, all these items, to go up in smoke on the altar as a fire offering to the Lord, it is a guilt offering. So certain parts of the guilt offering are brought up as a fire offering, i.e. burned on the altar. Once again, who, what, where, when, about eating any male among the Kohanim may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. That means the courtyard of the Mishkan or the temple. Why? Because it is a holy of holies. Like the sin offering, so is the guilt offering. They have one law. There's one law that governs both sin offering and guilt offering. Essentially, it's the same protocol. The Kohen who effects atonement through it, to him it shall belong. It means the Kohen who's eligible, as Rashi pointed out already twice, the Kohen who effects atonement. We just said any male Kohen could eat it. So what does it mean the Kohen who effects atonement through it shall, to him it shall belong? Meaning the Kohen who's eligible, I believe. We'll see Rashi soon. And the Kohen who offers up a person's burnt offering. Oh, 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 we just moved away from guilt offering. We're pivoting. Watch out. Pivot, the card just turned. Any co- and the Kohen who offers up a person's burnt offering, that was the voluntary Ola offering, the bu- voluntary burnt offering. The skin of the burnt offering, oh, we had this last time, or, or we mentioned yesterday that's a, that uh, Moses had to encourage the Kohanim because with, when it comes to the burnt offering, the Kohen only gets the skin. But we never saw that inside. Here's the verse that says that. The Kohen who offers up a person's burnt offering, the skin of the burnt offering, which he has offered up, belongs to the Kohen and shall be his. He gets the hide. 
Mark mentioned that yesterday. That's why it's a, a poor man's offering because all he gets is the hide. All he gets is the skin. Where do we see that? Right here. Verse number eight, chapter, se chapter seven, verse eight. When you have a burnt offering, the whole thing is burnt except for the skin, except for the hide. The skin and oh, skin in the game. Oh, there you go. Good. Verse 9, and any meal offering baked in an oven and anyone made in a deep pan or a shallow pan belongs to the Kohen who offers it up. It shall be his. Remember, he takes the three-finger representation, burns that on the altar. The rest, the Kohen eats it. And any meal offering mixed with oil or dry shall belong to the sons, to all the sons of Aaron, one like the other. There is no preference among the group. Okay, now let's talk Rashi and do the last little bit inside. Let's see what Rashi has to say about this. Um, hold on. They shall slaughter... Rashi. Um, scripture seemingly comes to describe many slaughters... However, since we do not find the case of communal guilt offering mentioned in Scripture, so as it links the guilt offering and the burnt offering, in order to include also the communal offering and the requirement that two be slaughtered in the northern sector, okay. Yeah, I, we're going to skip that Rashi. That's a very technical Rashi, and it's about a limud, it's about learning a der derivation to learn out about a communal burnt offering. We're going to leave that. Now, all of it's fat. Until here, the sacrificial parts of the guilt offering had not yet been delineated. Oh, interesting. When it came to the Asham, last week we did not discuss which parts of the Asham. Asham is a guilt offering. We talked about sin offering last week, but not the guilt offering. We didn't delineate which sacrificial parts of the guilt offering should be offered. This is why scripture needs to delineate them here in this verse. However, by the way, verses 34, it's probably 3 and 4. It should be a dash typo. Not, there's verse not, <laughs> no 34, it's 3 and 4, okay? That 34 should be 3-4. However, the sacrificial parts of the sin offering have already been delineated in the Parsha of Ayikra last week. And that is why its sacrificial parts were not delineated in the section describing the law of the sin offering, which we just had a few verses ago. So the sin offering parts were delineated last week, so we don't have them. The guilt offering was not delineated, was not specified, so that's why we have it in this week's Torah portion. The tail, aha! In the case, oh, look at this. I was wrong. In the case of the peace offering, the Torah treated sheep and goat offerings as two separate entities by specifying the sacrificial procedures for each one separately, and, the, and it was only by the sheep that the tail was offered. Why then is no distinction made between sheep and goats in the case of the guilt offerings here? It just says offer the tail, but it doesn't say only in a case of a sheep, not a goat. So I thought it only meant a sheep. We weren't talking about goats. But Rashi says, no, it's not differentiating between sheep and goats here. Why? Because since for a guilt offering, only a ram or a lamb may be brought. Oh, there we go. Since for a guilt offering, you can only bring a ram or a lamb. And rams and lambs are included in the categories of those animals whose tail is one of the sacrificial parts. No distinction made between sheep and goats. In other words, the answer is because there's no goats here. Ta-da! Spoiler alert. Right? We said that, that by a guilt offering, the fat of the tail is also brought. What about the goat? <laughs> There's no goat. Verse for, for, obviously, we, could, we should have looked la back to last week and seen which animals were to be brought. But if it's only sheep and goats, sorry, it's only ram and lambs, a ram is an adult sheep and a lamb is a baby sheep. Am I right here or am I wrong? Do we know if a ram, are rams and sheep related? Is that confirmed? 
think so. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I'm assuming. That, I'm assuming because Rashi says they're all from the from the from the uh, the sheep family. So look, I, I feel like I should know animals better. You know, Mary had a little lamb, a little ram. Was it a sheep? What was Mary doing? Do we know? We we don't know. Mary had a little lamb, right? But apparently, apparently, a lamb is a baby sheep, and a ram is, I think, an adult male. Is that true? Could somebody fact check me? Note. I've got the note on that. What do you got? Actually, yeah, the my footnote referred me back to a previous footnote, actually, in Nice. It says the Mishnah describes the ages of a male sheep mm. until the day before its first birthday. It qualifies as a lamb. Got it. The thirty-first day after its first birthday until the day before its second birthday it qualifies as a ram. For the first thirty days of the second year, it is disqualified as too old for a lamb and too young for a ram. Uh, Look at that. Once the male sheep reaches its second birthday, it is no longer fit to be an offering. There you go. All right. So it's a sheep. The whole thing is a sheep. The whole the general category is sheep. But when it's under a year, it's a lamb. When it's over a year, it's a ram. When it hits two years old. It's too old. That's it. Two years, you're done. And I thought Olympic athletes were young. This, this, this sacrifice, you hit two, you're done. You're over the hill. Someone tell Tom Brady. Tom Brady, the GOAT, is back out there. He unretired. <laughs> Unbelievable. So there's an age limit for sheep, but not for goats. The dude is back. He's back in uniform in Tampa Bay. Unbelievable. All right. All right. En enough about Tom Brady. Let's get back to, uh, to the sacrifices. Um... Guilt offering, guilt offering, guilt offering. Um, Rashi, it is a guilt offering until its name is removed from them by sending it out to pasture. What does that mean? This teaches us concerning a guilt offering whose owner has died or whose owner has lost the original animal. Uh-oh. <laughs> Can you imagine? You designated an animal for, a, for a, um, a guilt offering and then you lost the animal? And then you subsequently received atonement through another animal. Although the original guilt offering animal stands ready uh, that its value to be offered up as an... Uh, okay, nevertheless... You know what? This is going to get too technical. Yeah. All right? We're going to skip this. Yeah. All right, too technical. It's talking about losing animals. And then what do you do if you find the animal? And what is it? What is it do? Like, is it designated? Is it... All right. Next. Um, any male... No, we, that's okay. Here we go, one law. We're gonna, uh, ba, 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 ba. The Kohen who affects atonement through it, Rashi clarifies for the third time today, any Kohen who is fit to affect atonement takes a share in it. Again, not the one who actually does it, the one who is fit to do it. This excludes one who immersed himself on that day for his uncleanliness, who may not perform the sacrificial service of holy things until sunset. The way it Tful Yom, Tful Yom means someone who is, who is impure, um, and needs to go to mikvah, and then goes to mikvah, but the purity doesn't kick in until that night. So the mikvah immersion happens, let's say, during the day, but the impurity is still pending until nightfall. When nightfall happens, that triggers the purity. So he went to mikvah, but coming out of the mikvah doesn't render him pure until he also has nightfall. So someone who's in that state, right, cannot eat the sacrifice because he's not yet fully pure. He went to mikvah already, but he's not fully pure until that night. Um, so why do some people, some very religious people, go to mikvah just before services on Shabbos? Oh, so mikvah before services is not for 
this type of uncleanliness, it's for an additional state of purity or general uncleanliness. So what we're talking about here, that's a good question. And, and it gives me an opportunity to speak about the, the Hasidic custom to go to mikveh every day. So not only on Shabbos, but many have a custom to go every single, every single morning before davening. That is not a, I think I touched a dead animal or a dead carcass or, you know, whatever, this, that, or the other, and, and therefore I'm impure, and therefore I'm going to purify myself to go into the temple, read sacrificial meat. This is just purely a spiritual action. A mikvah is a pure, a mikvah is a pure entity. It's a special thing. It's a tefillah, which means, not tefillah, tevila. Dipping, immersing in mikvah is related to the word bittel, which is the idea of self-nullification. It's the idea of, it's, it's, it's absorbing a spiritual consciousness before we start the day. It's no different than study, meditation, and giving tzedakah before we daven. It's another type of preparation before davening that many, many, many Hasidic men, Chabad men, and others do every single morning. Yes, Donna. So, of course you do the mod at me before the mikvah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, for sure. Other prayers before the mikvah? Uh, not necessarily. You could do the morning blessings either before or after the morning brachot, the ones about standing up and the, my back works, my leg works. I got shoes on. Those prayers, the prayer on Torah, you could do or you could also not do. You know, in some, I mean, in yeshiva, it's great because you got. I was just in Chicago, and Mendel's dormitory is right next door to the mikvah. And also, he's like right next door to his like base medrash where, the, where they study. So he wakes up in the morning. I mean, I don't know his schedule. He wakes up early. He said it by a kiddush when he was here last, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago. Hanukkah time. I forget when he was home. Um, last, and he spoke about his schedule at the kiddush. And I think he wakes up like 6.30 or 6.45. 6.30-ish. Yes. Goes to mikvah. Yeah, he goes to mikvah. And then he has additional study. And then he goes into the day. Anyway, the point is that it's uh, when it's convenient, it's convenient. You know, when it's right next door or right in the ba- when I started in Morristown, it was great. It was a big five-story building, and I was on the fifth floor. On the bottom floor, first floor is where the mikvah was. So it's like super easy. Mikvah showers. A personal shower before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shower, mikvah is the whole thing. It's like a day spa. Boom, you're good to go. Get the day get the day started in luxury. The only thing we're missing are manis and petties. It's not happening at the uh, at the old mikvah. Um, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. That's a measure of additional purification. This, you know, unholiness, spirituality, it's like, it's all, so that's to, to like supercharge. What we're talking about here is a Kohen who legitimately back in ancient times became impure. And if he became impure, he can't go into the temple building. He can't eat of the sacrificial food until he becomes pure. And depending on the severity, depends. so like if he came impure with a dead body, a human body, you need seven days and a red heifer. If he came in contact with a lesser level of impurity, you just need to go to mikvah, you know, and, uh, and wait till, till nightfall. So that would be what we're talking about here. So the point is that that Kohen who became impure, he had to go to mikvah and then wait till nightfall. Before nightfall arrives, he can't eat from this uh, sacrificial food. He is ineligible. He's an, Ill- an ineligible receiver uh, for that food. Can't stop the football analogies today. Okay, so, um, yeah, another case is someone who's lacking atonement. For example, if he did not yet bring a sacrifice on the day after his immersion, such as a Zav or a Mitzorah. So there are other types of impurity where not only do you have to go to mikvah, not only do you have to wait till, let's say, nightfall, but you also have to bring a carbon, you have to bring a sacrifice. If he did all the other stuff but didn't bring his offering, again, he can't eat from the sacrificial food. If it's a Kohen who became a Zav or a Mitzorah, different types of impurity, you know, lepra, etc., then he, he just can't eat it until until he finished the purification rite and ritual, including all the details. Also, one his close relative died on that day, 
who's also disqualified from performing the sacrificial service. Those are three examples of Kohanim who are precluded, excluded, ineligible from eating this um, guilt offering meat. Um, and the Kohen who offers up a burnt offering belongs to the Kohen. This excludes one who immersed himself on that day, lacking atonement. Close, oh, same, same three exceptions. All right, I think we're good with that. Um, any meal offering baked in an oven belongs to the Kohen. Now, one might think that it belongs to him alone. Scripture, therefore, says any meal offering shall belong to all the sons of Aaron. So, uh, but maybe it belongs to all of them. But the verse says belongs to the Kohen who offers it up. So how do we reconcile? So we do have a contradiction, the same similar contradiction we had before. One verse says that the meal offering, you know, you take the meal offering, you take a representation, put it on the altar. The rest belongs to the Kohen who offers it up. But then it says it belongs to all the sons of Aaron in verse 10. So which one is it? So Rashi explains. It belongs to the family of the day when they offer it up, the family of the Kohanim. The Kohanim are divided into 24 divisions called watches or shifts. I'll call it shifts. Each watch or shift being on duty for the temple service for one week. Each day, and they, and they rotate it again. So the 1 through 24, and then when that finishes again, 1 through 24, and that covers 48 weeks, and that's more or less good for the year. Each day of the week, a different family of Kohanim from that week's watch was on duty. When a Kohen offered up an Israelite's meal offering, it was shared equally among all of his family who were on duty that day. So again, there were different priestly families. Each one had a week shift, and whoever of that larger family, whichever family members specifically were working on that day, they did it. I want to speak to you about matzah bakery and earthenware vessels. Okay, here we go. Oh, and we're late, so I'm going to move very quickly here. Um, oil is a voluntary donated meal offering or dry sinner's meal offering doesn't have oil. As I said before, we don't make it look fancy and that's it. Okay. All right. I want to share with you two things. Number one, regarding shifts, even today, there are shifts. I mean, in many areas in life, including the matzah bakery, we're almost, it's almost Passover time. We actually got in our big shipment of matzah here at Chabad. We got it in a few days ago. We had matzah galore, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of matzah that came in representing millions of dollars of matzah. I'm kidding, but it's very, it's expensive. So the point is like this. Matzah, there are matzah bakeries where you can put together a group and come into the matzah bakery and bake your own matzah. That's considered to be the ideal mitzvah. Handmade matzah is the best, but handmade matzah that you make is even better. Now, one second, you're thinking, I don't know how to make matzah. Correct. They don't task you in actually doing the, all the details, but like you can sand the sticks, the rolling pins, because it has to be sanded in between each and every... Um, each and every round, because if there's any dough that's stuck to the rolling pins and then it gets mixed into the next batch, that might be over 18 minutes and boom, you got chametz, can't be over 18 minutes, so you got a problem. So um, in yeshiva, when I was in Maristown, other yeshivas, you go into Crown Heights, to the matzah, to the, to the, um, to the matzah bakery, and you, you take a shift, there's a yeshiva shift, if you sign up for families, many families have their own shifts in many cities that have matzah bakeries, it's like a beautiful custom. You know, you put together a family or two or three to go into the matzah bakery, you make your, you're involved on some level with your own matzah, you know, maybe you help mix the, mix the ingredients together or whatever it is. I mean, they have professionals there that know what they're doing, but you know, you take part in it somehow and then you can buy, you can buy your matzah. Typically, it's about 25% more cost to buy your own matzah and you're thinking, but I helped. No, they have to navigate you there. So there, there's an upcharge because you disrupted the process and you came in and slowed down their process. So yes, you want it? Good, it's special, yes. Okay, you're gonna pay for it. All right, that's the way it works at matzah bakeries. Make sense? Shifts. So if you make a shift, you get to eat it, your shift gets to eat that matzah, you get first rights in that matzah. Now, like this. 
Earthenware versus copper, give me 60 seconds, let's knock this out. Human beings were created from the earth. We are like earthenware vessels, we're not metal, we're earthenware. Which means that like earthenware vessels, we absorb. We absorb, highly absorbent. Human beings are very absorbent. We're very susceptible to the influences around us. And like earthenware vessels, when it's boiloi, it's not polte. When we absorb, we don't ever fully purge. We, don't ever, we never fully get rid of what we absorb. That's why it's so important to make sure that what we're absorbing is only positive and holy and good for us. Don't let yourself take in the negative stuff. Because once it's in, how are you going to get rid of it? Right? How are you going to unsee what you saw and hear what you heard or unthink what you thought? Too late. You already thought it. You saw it. Heard it. So rather, put up, put up uh, the barriers beforehand before it gets absorbed. That's the spiel. That's the message for today is you are an earthenware vessel. Your life, your being, your body, your mind, your heart, your soul is sacred. Take care of it. All right. That's it for, ten- that's it for today. Tonight, you be the judge. What happens when you find a treasure on someone else's property? Obvious, right? Not so fast. Tonight, 8 p.m., you be the judge. Hope to see you then. There's no class tomorrow or Thursday, right? Tomorrow is a fast day. Can can I do a class on a fast day? I might be able to. I don't know what else. Oh, um, school gets out at 12. Do I have to do carpool? You know what? I'll send out an email. It's possible I can do it, right? Um... 12 o'clock, I still should be okay. I mean, it's like, how many hours is that? It's a few hours of fasting. So maybe tomorrow, Thursday, not for sure not, because I'm going to be running around all day. Um, but maybe tomorrow. I'd like to not miss tomorrow. We'll see. I'll, I'll make every effort if I can. Okay, all right. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you hopefully tonight you. and pass it with tomorrow. Afrelech and Purim. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody.